Turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. As I did last time I was here, I'm, every time I see the word LORD in all caps, I'm going to read it as Jehovah. I also want you to pay attention to the references to the Exodus and to the Sabbaths here in this text. This shows a thematic connection between the book of Exodus and the book of Ezekiel. Notice again in connection with the Exodus and with the Sabbath how the Lord tells his people that he made himself known through the Exodus and through the Sabbath. Hear now this reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 1 through 20. It came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that certain elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Then the word of Jehovah came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Then make known to them the abominations of their fathers. Say to them, thus says the Lord God. On the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob, I made myself known to them in the land of Egypt. I raised my hand in an oath to them, saying, I am Jehovah your God. On that day I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, Each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes, (coughs) and do not defile yourselves with idols, with the idols of Egypt. I am Jehovah your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my wrath on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my name's sake that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight (coughs) I had made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. (coughs) Therefore, I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me, between them and me, that they might know that I am Jehovah who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. But I acted for my name's sake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I brought them out. 
So I also raised my hand in an oath to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands, because they despised my judgments and did not walk in my statutes, but profaned my Sabbaths, for their hearts went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eyes spared them from destruction. I did not make an end of them in the wilderness. But I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am Jehovah your God. Walk in my statutes. Keep my judgments and do them. Hallow my Sabbaths. And they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am Jehovah, your God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your holy word. We're thankful that it is indeed alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And we ask, Father, that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, would wield that sword effectively in our midst here this morning. May this be a time of your power. We ask that you would grant us true preaching here this morning, preaching that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, but also we pray that the power of the Spirit would work in those who hear this proclamation. We ask, Lord, that you would do this as a means of glorifying yourself, but also as a means of blessing us your blood-bought children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first time I came here, I preached on 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. In that text, the primary focus was to show you how it is that we receive all things that pertain to life and godliness through the one who called us by his own glory and virtue. In other words, the absolute necessity of knowing Christ in order for us to appropriate everything that we need for our sanctification. The next time I came, it was Second Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We need the knowledge of Christ from the Old Testament. We need the knowledge of Christ, or we need to see the glory of Christ in the Old Testament. That's where I left you last time. When I preach from, if not the last time I was here, but the last, you get the point. Oh, yeah. When I preach from Second Corinthians chapter three and verse eighteen, the importance of just not seeing the glory of Christ in the New Testament, but to also see the glory of Christ in the Old Testament. So last time I was here, yeah, it was last time I was here. It was the book of Exodus. And there's that refrain, that key phrase, and they shall know, or sometimes, and you shall know that I am Jehovah. It is important for us to realize, indeed, that we can see Christ revealed in the Old Testament. We can grow in our knowledge of him. We can see his glory in the Old Testament and be transformed by it. So often when people think about the Old Testament, they only see Christ revealed in those types and in those prophecies, those foreshadowings, and in those prophecies. For example, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we recognize that Christ is the seed of the woman that would bruise Satan's head. We see him represented in the Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. We see him represented in the other atoning sacrifices in the book of Leviticus. 
In the book of Deuteronomy, we see him as that prophet that God would raise up like unto Moses. And as I pointed out last time and other previous times, it's very important for us to recognize that not only is Christ revealed in those types and shadows and foreshadowings, we need to recognize he had a role. He had a role during those Old Testament times. Let me read this again from Hebrews chapter 3, verses, like I think I'm going to go ahead and go all the way through um, verse 5. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one, referring to Christ, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house." What is the author of Hebrews seeking to tell us? He's seeking to tell us that the reason why Christ has greater glory, receives greater glory than Moses, is because Christ built the house of which Moses was a part. Do you believe that? Christ built the house of which Moses was a part. Charles Hodge, in his Systematic Theology, states that in the New Testament, this manifested Jehovah, who led his people under the Old Testament economy, is declared to be the Son of God, the Logos, who was manifested in the flesh. This is an old, old doctrine. It goes all the way back, not just to Charles Hodge, but even prior to him, about how the second person of the Trinity is the manifested Jehovah of the Old Testament. When you read, Lord, with all caps in your Old Testament, you should be understanding that most likely that's a reference to the second person of the Trinity. That's a reference to Christ. Now, there are places in the Old Testament where the name Jehovah does refer to God the Father. An example of this is Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says that Jehovah spoke to my Lord. Well, that's Jehovah speaking to the Messiah. So that's the Father speaking to the Son. So that's one of those places where we recognize that the name Jehovah does refer to God the Father. In John chapter 1, verse 18, we do read this statement, no one has seen God at any time. Well, that has to be a reference to God the Father because we recognize that Jehovah appeared, for example, to Abraham. Genesis 1.18. We also read how Jehovah appeared to Isaac. He also appeared to Jacob. He appeared to the three great patriarchs. And so we recognize that's the second person of the Trinity. In fact, it was in the garden, in the cool of the day. It was Jehovah that conversed with Adam and Eve. So what the scriptures demonstrate, what the Old Testament scriptures demonstrate, is that the name Jehovah primarily refers to the second person of the Trinity. And we should recognize that every time Jehovah was manifested to his people, every time he spoke to his people, that Jehovah is the second person of the Trinity. The message last time I was here was on the knowledge of Christ from the book of Exodus. The message this morning is a sequel to that. 
Last, last time I was here, we saw that in, in the book of Exodus, how Christ made himself known as Jehovah through the Exodus, the tabernacle, and the Sabbath. In Ezekiel, we learn that Christ will again make himself known as Jehovah to Israel and to the Gentiles by reversing and repeating the Exodus. It really is that simple. We see that indeed Christ will make himself known as Jehovah to Israel and to the Gentiles by reversing and repeating the Exodus. I think it's helpful to understand that Ezekiel wrote his prophecy at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity. We should understand that this book was written to those who were under the chastisement, the discipline of God. So why did the Lord write this book for his people who were under discipline? Because it's like you and me, when we're disciplined by the Lord, we need encouragement. We need for him to reveal himself to us even in those times of chastisement and discipline. And there was undoubtedly a believing remnant among the covenant people of God who were in that Babylonian captivity. And I believe also the Lord was expanding that believing remnant even while the nation was under the chastisement of God. The key phrase in the book of Ezekiel is, and they, or you, shall know that I am Jehovah. That phrase occurs 70 times throughout the book. A book that has 48 chapters and has that key phrase, and you, or and they, shall know that I am Jehovah, does seem to suggest to me a divine emphasis. That key phrase occurs 29 times in connection with judgment on God's people. It occurs 24 times in connection with God's judgment on the surrounding nations that were God's enemies. And it occurs 17 times in connection with the restoration of God's people. Now, I will say this. I think that that key phrase does establish the theme of the book of Ezekiel. But even if somebody says, no, I think it's this versus that or whatever, that's got to be a key idea, right? Seventy times the Lord says, and you or and they shall know that I am Jehovah. Now, I want you to understand that in chapter 20, which I read at the beginning of this message, I wanted you to see and understand how there's a connection between the book of Exodus and the book of Ezekiel. That connection is made very clearly in chapter 20. Christ declared in the book of Exodus that he intended to make himself known as Jehovah. Again, as Jehovah mean in the capacity of Jehovah, or you could even say in the role of Jehovah. See, Christ's desire was and still is for his people to learn a full-orbed significance of his name. He intended for his name to speak volumes to God's people about himself. When you think of the name Christ, when you think of the name Jesus, when you think of the name Jehovah, you should be struck with reverence for your God. So Christ declared, as I said, in Exodus, that he intended to make himself known as Jehovah. He saw that he intended to make himself known to Israel, first of all, as Jehovah, through the Exodus, through the tabernacle, and through the Sabbath. And he intended to make himself known both to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. 
in chapter 7 of Exodus, we read about how the Lord intended to make himself known as Jehovah to the Egyptians. And then in chapter 9, to make himself known as Jehovah to the whole world. And Christ declares in Ezekiel that he had previously made himself known to Israel as Jehovah. Again, this comes out of chapter 20. By delivering them from Egypt, notice verse, well, you may have a hard time keeping up by flipping around in the Bible. So uh, if you can keep up, that's great. If not, I'll understand. But back in Exodus 20, this is, again, listen to this, verse 5. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day that when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to them saying, I am Jehovah, your God. Again, it's also almost completely, well, it's restated in verse 9, but also The Lord said here in chapter 20 of Ezekiel that he had made himself known through his Sabbaths. Look at verse 12. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me that they might know that I am Jehovah who sanctifies them. And this is essentially repeated in verses 19 and 20. I am Jehovah your God. Walk in my statutes. Keep my judgments and do them. Hallow my Sabbaths. And they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am Jehovah your God. I wonder how many people gather for worship on the Lord's Day and they have no concept that they should be worshiping the Lord for Him to make Himself known to them. Is that how you see your Sabbath? Is this something that you see that the Lord intends to use so that you would know Him better? To grow in your fellowship with Him. We also learn in the book of Ezekiel that Christ intended to make Himself known when His sanctuary is in the midst of His people forever. I would suggest you turn to Ezekiel 36 to hear these words, actually 37. This is, starting with verse 26 of Ezekiel 37. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hopefully hopefully you recognize that as covenant language. But here it is, verse 28. And the nations also will know that I, Jehovah, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. When did that begin? When did that begin? Well, look at Exodus chapter, I mean, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at how Ephesians 2 ends, verses 19 to 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, 
but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building is being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Christ, back there in Ezekiel 37, is letting us know, we who now live in the Messianic age, that God's tabernacle is dwelling place is with his people now. Every time you gather together, he is in the midst. He dwells among his people. He dwells in you if you're a believer. You're a temple. I don't think I have to go into details on that one. But think about this. What I want us to look at now is the thematic outline of the book of Ezekiel. First of all, in the first section of the book, which is chapters 1 through 33, we learn that Christ will again make himself known as Jehovah to Israel and the Gentiles by reversing the exodus. Now, what do I mean by that? Reversing the exodus. Well, what was the exodus? It was God's people being taken out of bondage and being delivered so that they could then, what, enter the promised land. So the reversal of that is what? Taking people from the promised land and moving them back into bondage. This time, not Egypt, but Babylon. In the first three chapters of Ezekiel, we find Ezekiel's commission, at least his first commission. Or you could look at it as, um, at the other section of the book, there's a renewal of his commission. What we find is, in the first section of the book, the major division of the book, is where he primarily pronounces doom on Israel, or judgment, I should say, on Israel and the nations, the nations that surrounded it. He begins, and this is the section that deals with the prophecies against Jerusalem and Judea. It's in that first section, chapter 1 through 24, I want you to look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 of Ezekiel, verse 13. Chapter 5 and verse 13. This is what we read. Thus shall my anger be spent and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be avenged. And here it is. And they shall know that I, Jehovah, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. He's talking about Jerusalem here. You know, one of the Major mistakes that some people make is they think that the opposite of wrath is love. No. The opposite of love is hate, not wrath. Make no mistake about it. You can be the object of God's love and still be the object of his wrath as we think about a fatherly wrath against his children. Well, I tell you what, one of the things that kept me straight as a kid 
was the fear of my dad's wrath. That, as I said, this is a reference to God's wrath against Jerusalem. And then he, in, in chapter 6 and verse 7, this has to do, this is in connection with upon Judea. Verse 7, 6, 7. The slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am Jehovah. Uh, again, same thing is in verses 13 through 14. I'm just giving you a taste of what is happening in this book. What comes next after the prophecies against Jerusalem and Judea are the prophecies against the surrounding nations. Um, This starts in chapter 25 of Ezekiel. Chapter 25 of Ezekiel. This is, this is 25 verses 1 through 7. This is the Lord's pronouncement of judgment against Ammon. As you, as you read here in verse, I'll just start with the first few verses of chapter 25. The word of Jehovah came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. As you look at verse 5 of this chapter, we read this. And I will make Rabbah a shamble for, let me, let me make sure I read that correct, a stable for camels and Ammon a resting place for flocks. Then you shall know that I am Jehovah. And as it moves through the rest of the chapter, there is judgment against Moab. And at the end of that judgment against Moab, where we see in verse 11, I will execute judgments on Moab, and they shall know that I am Jehovah. Then it moves to judgment pronounced against Edom. And again, it ends with, and they shall know my vengeance, says the Lord God. Then judgment against Philistia. It ends with these words in seventeen, verse 17. I will execute my vengeance on them with furious rebukes. And they shall know that I am Jehovah when I lay my vengeance upon them. You see the picture here. It's a very fitting sequel to the Sunday school lesson, wouldn't you say? God doesn't play around. I mean, there are people out there playing church. Sadly, they don't take God seriously. Why? It's because they don't know Him. They haven't been redeemed by the blood of the Son. They haven't been born again by the Spirit of God. <coughs> I love electricity. I love all the things that it does. <coughs> Provides lights, heat, air conditioning. My cell phone. But let me tell you something. I have great respect for electricity. One of the reasons is one of my friends growing up became an electrician. He didn't realize that one of those wires that he was working on was live. And when he grabbed a hold of it, it burned off his arms down to his elbows. I love electricity, but I fear it too. I love God. I love my Savior. I love Jehovah. But I got a healthy fear of him as well. In fact, as was pointed out in the Sunday school lesson, 
One of the places where we see the wrath of God so beautifully displayed, and I don't mind saying beautifully displayed, is at the cross. Now these judgments against the nation are connected structurally to the judgment that Christ pronounced against his people. You see, these judgments against the nation follow the pronouncement of judgment against his people. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's a sobering thought. But this is what we see here in Ezekiel. Judgment begins with the house of God. And woe to those nations who are outside the covenant. It's interesting that these judgments are pronounced. These judgments that are pronounced proceed the announcement of the fall of Jerusalem. Look in chapter 33 and look at verse 21. And it will come to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity. Excuse me, it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity. In the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, that one who had escaped from Jerusalem came and said to me, the city has been captured. city has been captured. In other words, you have the prophecies against Judah and Israel, the prophecies against those seven nations that surrounded Israel. Then we find at the end of those Threats of punishment. Jerusalem has been captured. The implication is, and the temple has been destroyed. During the exile, God was not making himself known to the exiles through the temple. But he will. He will do that in the future. Now, these judgments against the nation actually serve as a type of transition between the two major sections of the book. Again, the two major sections is chapters 1 through 32 and then 33 to the end of the book, 48. Also, these prophecies against the nations are prophetically connected to the restoration of God's people. Chapter 28, chapter 28, starting with verse 24. 28, starting with verse 24. There And there shall no longer be a pricking briar or a painful thorn for the house of Israel, from whom all, yeah, I'll get it, from among all who are around them, who despise them, then they shall know that I am the Lord God. What's the point? Part of their restoration is the judgment against those seven nations. I can remember reading this for the first time and it struck me. Where someone made the point that the punishment of of the wicked is part of the 
redemption of God's people. Have you ever thought about that? Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Verses 9 and 10. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the soul of of those who had been slain for the testimony of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Think about Think about those who are crying and asking the Lord, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The judgment against the wicked is a part of the salvation of God's people. Question 28 of the Shorter Catechism asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? I'm sure some of the children could maybe make, well, some of you adults see it. Answer that question. Christ executes the office of a, a king by subduing us unto himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's how he manifests himself as our king. He subdues us to himself. He rules and he defends us and he restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Now before we look into this next section on, on, in the book about the restoration of God's people, I want you to hear what Patrick Fairbairn says uh, in his commentary on Ezekiel concerning the prophecy of restoration. The Lord did not bring, excuse me, the Lord did bring back Israel to their own land. And by reason of the judgments he executed upon those who in the past ages had troubled and vexed them, they were permitted to dwell in comparative peace even to attain to a place of relative strength and moral ascendancy. But the prophecy should not be limited to that temporary or should be temporary and partial fulfillment. We see its full extent and compass of meaning only when looking through the historical drapery and the shell of ancient relations, we contemplate Israel rising in Christ and the church of the New Testament to be the head and center of all that is great, permanent, and good for the world, before which everything that is aversed must fall. The heritage of Jacob is now no longer a narrow strip of territory which was given to the seed of blessing as a temporary type and earnest, but the whole ransomed earth which to its uttermost bounds is the destined possession of Christ and his Israel offspring. Uh, that's you and me, by the way. This, until this consummation is reached, the prophecy still waits for its full realization. In other words, we're still waiting for the eternal state. The meek will inherit the earth. According to Romans chapter 4, Abraham was promised not just that narrow strip of land. He was promised he would be the heir of the whole earth. He and his seed. What's going to be the great part of the blessing that we are now seeing happen in this fulfillment of the restoration of Israel? And then the fulfillment in the eternal state. It's that full revel, resol, I'll get it, full realization 
that we will fully know Christ. And I say that knowing that we will probably never really fully know Christ because we are finite. He's infinite. The next section in the book, chapters 33 through 48, this is where Christ says he will make himself known again as Jehovah to Israel and to the Gentiles by repeating the Exodus. In other words, the people are now in bondage. They're in Babylonian exile. God's going to bring them out. It's a renewed Exodus. It's a second Exodus. It's rather One of the reasons why we recognize that the book is divided into through these two major sections is in chapter 33, we see the renewal of Ezekiel's commission. And one of the things that connects these is in the first mention of Ezekiel's commission. In chapter 3 and verse 17, Christ says that he made Ezekiel a watchman. And we see in chapter 33 and verse 7, he again refers to Ezekiel as a watchman. As I mentioned before in that first section, Ezekiel primarily pronounced judgment. But in this, now that he's been recommissioned, he primarily is focusing on announcing restoration. The prophecies of restoration, I want you to see chapter 34 and verse 27. 34 and verse 27. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. (laughs) They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am Jehovah when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hands of those who enslaved them. Talking about the Babylonian captivity here. The theme of the entire book, the entire book is summarized in chapter 39, verses 27 through 29. Listen to this. You'll see that, yes, this is the whole book in capsule form. 39, starting with verse 27. When I have brought them back from the people, peoples, and gathered them out of their enemies' lands. And I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am Jehovah their God, who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any more. For I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord. I firmly believe that the reference to the spirit, the spirit being poured out there in verse 29, points forward to the outpouring of the spirit on the day of Pentecost. It is rather interesting, this verb that's translated, I will pour. In the Hebrew, it's in a form that is normally translated as a past tense. The prophets would sometimes state something as past tense that was clearly intended to be future as a way of demonstrating the absolute certainty that that would come about. By the way, Paul does that in Romans 8, but we won't go there. We then see these visions of Israel's restoration in chapters 40 through 48. At first, it kind of struck me that that thematic phrase, and they, and, or and you shall know that I am Jehovah, is not in these final visions. But we know from chapter 37, verses 
26 to 28. I've already read these, but I want you to listen to this again. Again, 20, 37, starting with verse 26. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them and multiply them, and I will set, here it is, and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their people, and they shall be my God. The nations also will know that I, Jehovah, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst. And so the first vision has to do with this new this new temple. That's in verses 40 through 43. Then a picture of a vision of the new priesthood, verses 44 through 46. And then the expansion of the boundaries in chapters 47 through 48. I like the way E.J. Young put it. He writes, It is obvious that the the prophet never intended these descriptions to be taken literally. It is clear that he is using figurative figurative or symbolic language. Every attempt to follow, follow out his directions literally leads to difficulty. A literal construction of chapter 41, for example, would result in placing the temple outside the city of Jerusalem. He doesn't mean, here's the city of Jerusalem, and it's outside the city of Jerusalem. He wants, it's, here's the city of Jerusalem, and the temple is going to extend beyond the city limits. One of the reasons why I'm no longer a dispensationalist. You want me to explain that after church? I can do that. The whole description he has comes to a striking climax in the very last words of the prophecy. Jehovah is there. If you'll go to the end of the book, that's the last statement. Jehovah is there. This is the heart of the entire description. The prophet is depicting a time when there will be true worship of the Lord. In an earthly temple? No. But in spirit and in truth. In other words, this elaborate presentation is a picture of the Messianic age. The Lord dwells in the midst of his people. In other words, we're living in the fulfillment of those visions at the end of the book. It is interesting that the book ends with those words, Jehovah is there. This parallels Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, where we read, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. The Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20. The Lord said, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Understand this, that every true Christian, every true Christian should be able to say about himself or herself, Jehovah is there. Every true Christian family should be able to say concerning itself, Jehovah is there. Every true church should be able to say Jehovah is there. The book of Ezekiel presents Christ making himself known as Jehovah by chasing his people and then restoring them. The restoration is presented in glowing language. 
But Christ is seen seen do nationally with his people. He also does individually with every one of his children. He chastens and restores his people for their good and his glory. Now, can you imagine what it would be like if the week that you were born, at the end of that week you were fully grown? And then you started packing to leave home? And you're about to be on your own? Hey, thanks for mo- thanks, Mom and Dad for bringing me into the world. It's been a great week. See you around. What kind of relationship would you have with your parents? Hmm. You see, you'd hardly know them. But the years that you were with them, as they took care of you, but yes, even as they disciplined you, created a bond between you and them. I don't know about you, but I've been around enough bratty children to be thankful for every time my parents spanked me. Especially when I needed it. I'm not saying I think I, I, I don't know if I necessarily think I always need it. I'm even thankful of the times when I didn't think I should have gotten spanked, but I did because at least I knew my parents were concerned about making sure I did right. If you are a Christian, Christ made himself known to you when he redeemed you from the bondage of your sin. just as he delivered Israel from her bondage of affliction in Egypt. He also makes himself known to you by dwelling in you, just as he dwelt with his people in the tabernacle and also in the temple. He also makes himself known to you through his Sabbaths. Let me encourage you to make good use of your Sabbaths. Just as he did for Israel, he does that for you. But he also makes himself known to you through those times of chastening and restoration. Just as he did for Israel under the old covenant. May you rejoice in all the ways Christ has made himself known to you so that your love for him may become stronger. Your fellowship with him may become deeper. And your desire to serve him may become greater. May you see his glory in all of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, and by beholding his glory being transformed into his very image. And also as you see him, as you learn more and more about him, may you indeed grow in grace and in the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. How you make it so abundantly clear that you desire to be known that you desire us to know you. Father, we recognize that as great a truth it is that your Son bore the wrath that we deserve so that we wouldn't face it and suffer it in hell and in the lake of fire. Father, may may we be mindful that you saved us to bring us into fellowship with yourself so that we could know you. For our Savior did say in John 17, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Lord, give us a thirst to know our Savior better. As we study the scriptures, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.